This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Another episode of Peace Whip. My name is Liz Remiswell, and today I have the pleasure to interview Anne Wright, who, I, who is in, based in Hawaii. And Anne has got an incredibly interesting career, um, starting as um, in the Army, as an Army Reserve Colonel for nearly 30 years, and then a diplomat for the United States in Nicaragua, Grenada, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Micronesia, Afghanistan and Mongolia and others, and um, and received the State Department's Award for Heroism for her actions in the Civil War in Sierra Leone. But she resigned from the Department of State in 2003 in opposition to the Iraq War and is also a co-author of Dissent, Voices of Conscience, and has appeared in the documentary Uncovered and is very involved with World Beyond War and also Code Pink. So welcome, Anne. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you, Liz. It's great to be with you. Yes, and so you're in Hawaii, and and you've had a very interesting and very different career sort of working for the Army and um, as a diplomat and also really as a peace activist um, for a number of years as well. So it's a very diverse career that you've had. How did you, well, did you start years. getting, I mean, what made you go to the Army in the first place? Well, like so many kids, uh, uh, I wanted out of the state of where I grew up, <laughs> the state of Arkansas. Uh, I didn't have any money to go travel. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to travel. The Army came through the university where I was and said, join the Army, see the world. You're a woman, you're not a nurse, you won't go to Vietnam. And yes, you probably will get to go to Europe. So that was the only reason I joined the military. I didn't come from a military family. I really had no interest in the military. And at the time, you could sign up for two years, and that was it. And I signed up, went to Europe, and then uh, ended up having... uh, I was very fortunate that I had very good leadership in the units that I was in, uh, and was not ever sexually assaulted in the military, which is one of the real dangers for women and men uh, in the U.S. military. But I was very fortunate that never happened to me, and I kept having very interesting jobs where I was not killing anyone, although at the same time U.S. forces around the world were actually doing uh, some pretty nefarious things. Right, so you enjoyed your career in the Army, and then? Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. Uh, it was, you know, military is tough. Uh, there are a lot of parts of it that you don't like. Uh, but one other aspect of that was that I wanted to make sure that when I was uh, old, like I am right now, 75 years old, uh, that I had a retirement I could re- re- uh, depend on. And I knew that the federal government uh had good retirement. That was the one thing my parents had told me, even though they weren't in the federal government. They said, you know, you always, if you hang in there with the federal government, you're going to get a, re, a good retirement. So 
something as crass as uh, looking out for your own retirement er uh, years was another reason that I stayed in the military. Uh, And then, as you mentioned earlier, I ended up uh, going into the U.S. Department of State as a diplomat and stayed there for 16 years. So uh, that they were interesting, very interesting careers, uh, no doubt about it. They were not easy, though, I'll tell you. So you would have lived in lots of different countries, and I guess things all came to a head in 2003. Well, that's right. In 2003, uh, where the, U- the Bush administration was... Uh, uh, you know, saying that the U.S. and its allies were going to uh, invade and occupy Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with uh, the incidents of 9-11, uh, had no weapons of mass destruction as far as I could see. Uh, I knew what the result was going to be with the deaths of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, uh, and, you know, a certain number of uh, U.S. military for sure would die in that, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it, and so I ended up resigning. And it's interesting because before that, I had actually gone to Afghanistan when the U.S. went into Afghanistan. I went in on the very first team of the U.S. diplomats that were there to reopen the U.S. embassy that had been closed for 12 years. I, I, I wanted to see what was going to happen and how the U.S. was going to handle this going after al-Qaeda. As it turned out, uh, the best way to go after al-Qaeda was through international policing methods and not invading and occupying and killing a huge portion of the Afghanistan, the Afghan population. So that was also an eye-opener at that time as well. And, and of course, you've watched um, the recent developments in Afghanistan as well and um, seen what's happened to that country. Yeah, it's horrible what's going on. I mean, it's uh, uh, the the fact that the U.S. Uh, is leading the international community in freezing the assets of the Afghanistan people, and here in the U.S. alone, we have over seven billion dollars that belong to the people of Afghanistan. And when you look at the World World Bank, the IMF, and all of these uh, donor agencies, uh, they're going along with the U.S. to freeze the funds just to put more pressure on the Taliban. And this is, of course, uh, you know, what the U.S. always does in retaliating. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's whenever the U.S., uh, I could say in quotes, loses or withdraws or whatever, the retaliation and retribution uh, on the, the people that are remaining. I you know it was it, the U.S. Had, had worked for a year and a half to try to get a, a peace agreement and did sign an agreement with the Taliban, but was never ever able to get its ally, the Afghanistan government, to sign anything with the Taliban. And therefore, and that was under the Trump administration, so when the Biden administration came in and said, well, we're going to go ahead and implement the uh, the accords that were signed with the Taliban, uh, in contrast to what the Trump administration did, which was tear up a lot of the treaties that the U.S. had, whether it was on the Paris Climate Agreement, where the the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, um, many of the international arms control things. The Trump administration didn't care. They just tore them up. But Biden said, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead with this uh, um, half a peace agreement with the Taliban, which the Afghan government would not sign. And then when the 
U.S. started withdrawing forces, got down to 2,500. Uh, the Taliban started retaking uh, uh, areas of Afghanistan, and so by the time the middle of August came around, they were in charge of two-thirds of the country. And then when the U.S. started flying its planes in to evacuate people, very quickly the rest of the country uh, went into Taliban hands, including the capital city. And so what are the people of Afghanistan supposed to do? Sit there with no money for their teachers, for their health care workers, for anybody that works uh, for the government to try to keep uh, services running for the people of Afghanistan. So this terrible retribution and retaliation the U.S. has uh, is a sordid part of of U.S. foreign policy with the sanctions, the killing sanctions uh, that the U.S. has on not only Afghanistan but on so many countries around the world. Yeah, the sanctions in, in Iran are also quite harsh on the people too, aren't they? Well, uh, certainly Iran, uh, North Korea, Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, you name any, any country that dares stand, well, in Russia and China, any any country that dares stand up to anything the U.S. any any policies the U.S. has for its own benefit, uh, then the U.S. just starts slapping sanctions on them. And for countries like China and Russia, they can withstand them. But the smaller countries, it really does wreak havoc uh, in their in their economy and in the basic services that they're able to give uh, their own people. Uh, I forgot to mention, of course, Yemen. It has one of the uh, harshest of the sanctions and the most critical uh, humanitarian disaster going on in the world today. So, and when you decided to leave uh, the diplomacy, what was that a difficult decision, and what did you do then? Well, it, it was difficult in a way because, you know, I was giving up a career that I had had for almost 40 years when you count in both the military and then going into the State Department. My whole identity was really working for the U.S. government and uh, deciding to resign on principle. I knew pretty well uh, that uh, I would, I wouldn't say I would lose a lot of friends, but there would be a lot of people that I'd worked with over the years that would have to be very careful about their interactions with me because I had I had been shown not to be loyal uh, to the killing policies of the United States, even though they themselves didn't agree with them, but they wouldn't resign over it, and they wouldn't call out the government uh, publicly on it. Uh, and I understand that because they're still working for the government, and so, uh, you know, you, you hold your nose to a lot of policies that you don't agree with, and that's really how I got through 40 years of working for the government. There there were plenty of policies the U.S. had that I did not like, but I didn't resign over it until finally the Iraq policy, uh, uh, the Iraq war policy. So after I resigned, uh, I really hadn't given much thought to what I was going to do after that. It was a hard decision to go ahead and, you know, give up that career. And then once I did, it was like, ooh, well, I don't know. I, I didn't know anyone in the American peace community. I knew many more dissidents in countries throughout the world in places where I'd served because that was one of the roles as a diplomat that you got to know all all types of people in the societies in which you were living. And so you you uh, had friends that were in the government and also in the government opposition. And so 
I had a, I, I knew a lot of people around the world that had challenged their own government's policies, but I didn't know anybody in the U.S. peace community. So it took a little while to start uh, getting invitations from the peace community after I was one of three U.S. diplomats that resigned. And uh, over time, uh, the Veterans for Peace and then Code Pink Women for Peace and then other organizations got in touch with me to speak at rallies and speak in, in seminars. And I started doing some writing. And, you know, all of that took a while because there, with each one of the invitations, uh, I, I can remember that I would kind of shake my head going, oh, my gosh, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I can do this. You know, I'm going to be speaking out in public in front of, you know, 10, 100,000 people about uh, my concerns of these policies, and then it was always, well, you resigned over it, so get out there and do it. <laughs> so over time, I've, uh, I've, and this is 18 years ago, almost 19 years ago when I resigned in March of 2003, uh, I've come to know uh, virtually every peace group there is in the United States, and of course many, many others uh, all over the world, and have really been enriched by the opportunity to be with with these groups and and uh, learn so much from so many people like yourself in New Zealand uh, that you know you've been working on peace issues for a long long time and so I'm really I feel very grateful to be able to know folks around the world that are willing to challenge their own government's policies. Thank you, and well, I've heard you speak too, and I think you're a remarkable wonderful speaker and not a, I mean and the fact that you that your you know your background and your knowledge gives a tremendous weight to your speaking so um, you know it must have been an extremely brave thing to do just to um, to resign when you didn't really know how things were going to be but um, I'm sure a lot of people are very grateful that you did and um, you've contributed a huge amount it's like, um, you know, it's like a, a career that never ends really now, isn't it, being a peace activist? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. And uh, uh, one of the things that gives me uh, great pleasure is when I get an email or someone comes up to me at, uh, after a, a, a talk that I've given and uh, they say, well, you know, I, I'm a veteran. I'm, I'm in the Army or I'm in the Marines or whatever, or I've just gotten out. And I've, I've read what you've written or I've heard you speak on YouTube and what you said really resonated with me and I'm so glad that, uh, you know, that you're speaking out because there are people that are needing to hear the story that you and so many others who are challenging government policies uh, are talking about. And um, if, we're in the, if we're in the military our, ourselves, you know, it's harder to sometimes get the information from uh, anybody but those that are in the military. With social media, though, you know, the door has been swung open, uh, uh, hopefully for good reasons, but, and um, unfortunately there are some, uh, you know, a lot of people that are speaking that I, I certainly don't agree with, uh, but that's the, that's the challenge of looking at all of the ideas that are coming out and then uh, finding out about the person and where the, their background and with mine solidly in the U.S. 
government uh, 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 organizations for decades, it does, as you mentioned, it does give my voice a, a little bit of um, uh, or credibility in, in the eyes of some people that are still in the government. Even though I'm just saying exactly what every other activist is saying, uh, but it's the fact that they weren't in the military or they weren't a diplomat, even though we're saying the same things, but sometimes that, that background coming from the um, institutions themselves does help people who are still in those institutions uh, uh, get a different view of what's uh, happening in the world. Yes, well, I guess that they know that you understand, you know, what's going on and, and you can understand the position of people who are working for the government. So, um, yeah. What's been some of your highlights over the years and working for the peace movement? Well, I think the highlights would be more in terms of, uh, you know, every now and then we have successes. <laughs> uh we, we seldom have one of actually stopping a war before it begins, although one could say that back in 2013, uh, when the Obama administration was, that looked like was going to be sending troops into Syria, that there was such a big outcry in the, in the peace movement in the U.S., uh, and the fact that, uh, other, uh, leaders of other nations were, I think, behind the scenes telling Obama, now that we're not going to join you on this one, so that one uh, stands out. Uh, you know, right now where we have such tensions, uh, where the the Biden administration uh, has such rhetoric uh, going on in Russia, and not that I condone at all the 130,000 Russian troops that are along the uh, border with with Ukraine. I mean that. Uh, the potential for something terrible to happen, whether and it, by incident or accident, is there whenever you mobilize that many troops. And then when the U.S. mobilizes its and NATO countries are mobilizing, the the whole issue of uh, you know NATO and the Ukraine. I mean, this has to be resolved with words and not guns. And oh my God, it just it makes you your head spin thinking that all of this is happening in 2022 and then when you look out in the western pacific and you see the huge armadas that the u.s has right in china's front yard and being joined the u.s armadas naval armadas being joined by ships from france and the uk and uh, canada and uh, uh, so the whole Western Pacific is just filled with ships that, some of which run into each other. Uh, we had there was a U.S. nuclear submarine that ran into something. They say it was a uncharted sea mount. But all of these sorts of things and aircraft that are flying, where the U.S. is sending the highest level uh, diplomats since Nixon agreed to a one-China policy. Uh, sending in the highest-ranking diplomats into Taiwan, and then the, the uh, mainland Chinese countering that with fleets of aircraft, jet aircraft that are zipping along the straits of uh, Taiwan, uh, coming right to their air defense zone uh, to say, you, you are, we still consider you a rogue province, 
and uh, uh, the U.S. is, is, it seems to me, purposely poking at all of these places, and I think that we as peace activists know one of the reasons is that you, you need to have enemies in order to sell weapons, and some of the best lobbyists we have in the United States are weapons lobbyists like Lockheed Martin and all of those, Raytheon. And so they want to keep selling aircraft and boats, and also you've got to have enemies to do that. And these administrations, where the congressional congressmen and women, the uh, leading political uh, candidates of both parties, all rely on massive donations from these uh, warmonger corporations. So that's that's not a highlight, but it's uh, it's a reality. I think that's a, one of the stark realities that we have that we have to face in all of our countries. And have you ever thought of going into politics? Not really. I I, uh, I appreciate those who are willing to do it. It's a brutal, brutal. Uh, system that we have in the United States, and it's getting worse and worse all the time. And uh, I think my voice is better outside of the political scene, where I can I can ask the questions of those that are either in political office or running for office, uh, questions that need to be asked to find out what they believe about uh, foreign policies, about war or peace. Uh, but um, I myself don't really have any. I don't really have any wants to uh, be a politician. I think there's uh, the, the environment is uh, not anything I really want to subject myself to, uh, but I certainly am willing to uh, challenge uh, the views of politicians who uh, have made the decision that that's what they want in their life, is to be uh, involved in the political process. Well, thank you very much, Anne, for everything you do, and thank you for talking to us today on Peace Witness, and um, wishing you all the very best um, in your home in Hawaii, and, um, yeah, wonderful to talk with you. Well, thank you, Liz, and best of luck to you all in New Zealand, and keep up uh, the challenges to the international community, and being a nuclear-free country and not joining in with all the crazy military stuff that uh, uh, goes on, although I think you join in some, but uh, not to the extent of uh, Australia, for example. <laughs> so thank you, and uh, best of luck to everyone in New Zealand. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.